turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be in the fifth chapter. We are concluding our series called The Blessed Life. Uh, Many of you, you've traveled with us over the past several months as we've walked through the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are really the prelude. They're the introduction to Jesus' most popular sermon, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, That's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's good for you. Uh, It will feed your soul if you'll read the entire Sermon on the Mount Mount, uh, in its entirety. Uh, But what we're doing is we're just walking through the Beatitudes that are the, the prelude to that sermon. Uh, Today, we are actually going to be concluding this sermon series. Um, I know that for many of you, even for myself alike, uh, this has been a a richly, deep, spiritually rewarding season for me. Uh, These Beatitudes, um, they have been challenging to say the least. Um, One of the things that I have been able to do throughout this series is look at myself in the mirror and recognize how pitifully pitifully far short I fall um, from who Jesus is. And hopefully, you've been able to say Uh, the same. Uh, But one of the things I love about this Beatitudes are are that they have been so challenging. They've been challenging specifically because they all start with a confrontation and then they end with a promise. And that confrontation at the beginning of each Beatitude is where I have trouble because what I learn through that confrontation is it's either God's way or it's my way. And I learned through this series how often I submit more to my own way than I do to God. So maybe you've recognized that same reality in your own life, how we prioritize kingdom of self often over the kingdom of God. And today as we come to the final beatitude, this beatitude is going to stand out like a black sheep. That's what you're going to see in a circle of beatitudes. This beatitude is the outsider. This beatitude is the outcast. This is the beatitude that you do not want on your team. You remember when you were in elementary school and you went out to the playground to to play or maybe at PE you went to play a game of kickball and what did the coach do? He identified two captains and then those two captains picked their team and you didn't want to be the last one picked because of how you felt in that moment if you were the last one picked. If it was me as a captain and Sam as a captain and Sam picked his person and then I picked mine and we went through all of the people and then there was one person left, I kind of looked at Sam and said, hey, you take them. (laughs) Or Sam looked at me and was like, you take them. We didn't really care whose team that last person fell on. Some of you were that last person, weren't you? And you know know that feeling all too well. Some of you were the captain (laughs) and you know what that's like as well. Well, that's how this beatitude is. This beatitude is the beatitude that we don't want on our team. We'll take the mercy, we'll take the pure in heart, we'll take the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness' sake, but we don't want this beatitude on our team. Today, what we're going to be talking about is persecution. We're going to be talking about persecution. Aren't you glad you came to church today? A topic that all of us just like barge through the doors when we hear that we're going to be talking about persecution, but you know, persecution is the inevitable result of living out the other seven Beatitudes. I told you at the very beginning, there are eight, arguably nine Beatitudes. We're concluding with number eight today. If you live out Beatitude one through seven, you will get inevitably eight, with an A-T-E. Okay, that's a bad dad joke right there. You follow? Nobody's getting it yet. Okay, but you will get inevitably you'll get number eight. So if you live like Christ and you start following these beatitudes, you will conclude that you will be persecuted. 
So when we live our lives with pure hearts, when we live our lives with, as ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we live our lives in such a way that mourns not only the sin of self, but also the sin of the world, when you're characterized by a man or a woman who has meekness, you can expect that your life will be persecuted. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 today. It says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, our verse today is not a popular verse. It's not one of those verses that you would print on wall decor or you would print on a nice cute rug that you'd put in front of your front door. It's not one of those verses that you would print on a kitchen towel. In fact, it's not one of those verses that you'd plaster on a t-shirt or even plaster on a coffee mug. It's not a popular verse, but this verse and verses like these, they are in the Bible. And they're in the Bible for a very particular and specific purpose. And we need to pay attention to these verses because they provide clarity to us on what the Christian life would look like. If you don't believe me, Paul spells it out like this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, for all those who desire to live godly lives, you will be persecuted. If you are a man or a woman in this room and you are trying to live your life in a way that honors and pleases the Lord, you can expect persecution based on Paul's words in 2 Timothy. In fact, it goes on further to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. I am content with insults and hardships. Listen, I am content with persecutions and calamities. For it's when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. If you're a child of God and you're trying to live the godly life, you're trying to do the right thing by the standard of God's words, you can't expect to face persecution. Here's a verse that maybe many of you are not ready for. In fact, I would argue that most of us are not ready for. And if there is one verse in all of Scripture that we can just take away and eliminate from Scripture altogether, this would be the verse that many of us would choose. It's Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. It says this then they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will deliver you up to persecution, some of your translations say, and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Child of God, man, woman of God, if you try to live your life in a way that honors and pleases the Lord, you will inevitably, at some point in your life or another, face persecution. You can expect persecution. You can expect to be hated by the nations. Now this might seem like a far off concept for many of us, but we need to understand that there are men and there are women all over this globe who are being persecuted and put to death for doing the very thing that you and I are doing in this room this morning. There are people all over the globe that when they leave their house, they cannot openly carry their Bibles. They are burying their Bibles at the bottom of their book bags and carrying them through the streets out of fear that if they are caught with a Bible, they will be persecuted, stoned, or put to death. There are people on this day gathered underground in China, in the Middle East, worshiping Jesus Christ. They are risking their lives to worship 
That's the reality of the world that we live in. It's the reality of what's going on around us even today. There are men and women, if they get baptized in Christ Jesus, they will be ostracized from their family and their own community. It's a reality of the world that we live in. Persecution is to be expected if you are a child of God. But here's the thing. Persecution comes in a variety of ways. It shows itself up in your life and my life in various different forms. It could be physical violence. Maybe it's stoning. If you follow Jesus in certain countries, you will inevitably die as a result of following the Lord. It's just the world we live in. Maybe it's threats or intimidation. Some of you have experienced threats or intimidation right here in your own country for the sake of living your life for or like Jesus. Another form of persecution is verbal abuse. I mean, Christians just getting mocked and slandered and ridiculed for standing up for their beliefs. You see this on a rise more now than you did even 10 years ago. Maybe it's social ostracizing. Maybe because you're walking like Christ and trying to live for Christ and you're vocalizing your faith, you have been socially ostracized by your family. Many of you, maybe your friends, they have disassociated themselves from you because you're living out the life that Christ has called you to live. Another form of temptation is being provoked, or temptation, period, is a form of persecution. Just being provoked. There are so many various forms of persecution, but what I want to do today is I want to dive deeply into what Jesus intended here when he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount at what he meant when he threw on the table this word, persecution. This word, persecution, in your Bible, it literally means to be harassed. It means to be harassed. It's not a fun exercise that all the disciples jumped up and said, hey, let's go get persecuted. No, none of them did that. In fact, all of them were like, jaws dropped to the ground thinking, you really mean that we're going to get persecuted for our faith if we follow you? That's probably more like what was happening here. It's not an enjoyable experience. Persecution here in Jesus' words range from being pressured and mistreated to suffering, affliction, and even pain. That's what persecution is. It's pressure and mistreatment. It's suffering, affliction, and pain, but maybe the best way to understand persecution this morning is if you and I understand what persecution is not. Let me say it this way. You will want to write this down. Often, Christians, which should be in quotes, often Christians are persecuted not for their Christianity, but for their lack of it. Let me explain what I mean by that. Often, Christians are not persecuted for their Christianity, but they're persecuted for their lack of it. Listen, persecution is not what happens to you because you are deliberately rebelling in sin. Like, persecution's not what happens to you because you are deliberately disobeying God. What do you mean by that, Trey? If a church member comes knocking on your door or calling your phone because he hasn't seen you in church in over three months, you're not getting persecuted. That's called accountability, right? And some of us misconstrue what persecution actually is. If you are deliberately in sin, if you've put your no on the table, if you're not trying to follow God and you feel like you got this pressure on you, that's not persecution. 
And we have to be clear about what it is not. Persecution is not what happens to you because you're just a stubborn man who chooses to live life his own way. Persecution is not people avoiding you because you're obnoxious. Make sense? Like if you're just an obnoxious child of God who, doesn't, who just badgers everyone around you and people stay away from you, you're not getting persecuted. They're just staying away from you because you're obnoxious. And sometimes that's just how the ball rolls. If people steer clear from you because you're ridiculously selfish and everything you talk about is the kingdom of self, you're not getting persecuted. People are just steering clear from you because you're ridiculously selfish. If you're super rude or opinionated or thoughtless or judgmental and you receive a backlash because of that, again, that's not persecution. And we have to, we can't confuse what persecution and what it's not. See, Christians are often persecuted not for their Christianity. They're often persecuted for their lack, their, their lack of Christianity. So Jesus doesn't say, though, here, blessed are the persecuted, period, does he? He doesn't just say, hey, if you're being persecuted for anything, then man, the kingdom of God is yours. No, what does he say? Blessed are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake. What does this word righteous actually mean? The word righteous means right living. That's all it means. It means right living. It's doing things the right way. It's when you and I choose to live our lives the way that God designed us to live them. We submit our lives up under his lordship. And Jesus says... You will be persecuted when you submit your life up under my lordship. Now, when we submit our lives up under the lordship of Christ, this means we are submitting our lives in our character. That's the nature by which we live. We're following him in our character. We're following him in our consciousness. That means the attitudes by which we carry out in our day-to-day lives. We submit our lives over to him in our conduct. This is the actions and the behaviors that we have each and every day. And we also submit our lives to him in our commands, the words that come out of our mouth. See, to be righteous means to be innocent. That's what it means. To be righteous means to be acquitted. To be righteous means to be blameless. So there's one inevitable conclusion when we think about, well, who are the righteous? And that is for all of us to raise our hand and say, well, it's not us. I'm not righteous. I'm not acquitted. I'm not innocent. I'm not blameless. I know myself far too well to make that claim, right? And some of you would say the exact same thing today. In fact, all of us should say the exact same thing today. So here's what we need to understand about righteousness. To be Righteous is to be like Christ. That's what it is. To be righteous is to be like Christ. Well, here's the problem. What is it? We're not like Christ. You're not like Christ. I'm not like Christ. Your spouse is not like Christ. And certainly your kids are not like Christ. Going to get a witness. I mean, we're just not like Christ. But guess what? Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is Christ, and Jesus is righteous. The Bible says that when you and I surrender our lives to the Lordship of Christ, he exchanges all of our sin for his righteousness. I'm going to flip over here to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
Didn't plan on doing this. It won't be on your screen, but read it later. It's phenomenal. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. I mean, how many men and women in this room can honestly say, hey, the love of Jesus just controls me? I mean, you want to know why I do the things I do, go to places I go, hang out with the people I hang out with? You want to know why I'm faithful? I mean, just the love of Jesus controls every single thing I do. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might not no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Saying we don't live for ourselves no more. When the love of Jesus controls me, all of my ambitions and wants and desires, they are thrown out the back door. I have new ambitions and new desires. Why? Because I'm a new man in Christ. I'm a new woman in Christ. I long for kingdom things, not for selfish things. Look at verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's now a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us then a ministry of reconciliation. If you are in Jesus, you have more reason to live than anyone on the planet. In fact, because you're in Christ, you now have purpose. And your purpose is not to fulfill the kingdom of self. Your purpose is to grow and expand the kingdom of God through your ambassadorship through your representation of Jesus before a watching world. That is in, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, nor counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then he makes this claim in verse 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ma'am, sir, when you place your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, you who were completely unrighteous, all of your sin was placed on the person of Christ Jesus, and all of Jesus' righteousness was then exchanged into your account. So when you stand before God, you don't stand before him because you have any righteousness in and of yourself. You stand before him because he was righteous in your place. And now that righteousness is imputed upon you. So God looks at you and he doesn't see the sin that you committed. He sees the righteousness of his son that you've placed your faith in. Isn't that good for all of us? It's good news for me. So when you live your life like that or under that banner, you can expect to be persecuted. Now why would good Christian people, because that's what we all are, right? Why would good Christian people ever have to endure persecution? I mean, doesn't that sound like a silly way for God to handle things? I mean, you have to be honest. Sometimes I read scripture, I'm like, Lord, I don't know who you asked about doing that, but that just sounds pathetic. I do that. And then I have to remind myself, you know what, God is much wiser than I am, and it might not always make sense, but man, I'm so glad he's not consoling me, because this would be a whacked, it's already a whacked out world, but it would be a really whacked out world if I were in control. And you have to admit, sometimes you're like that too. So why would a good God put us through persecution? I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning answering that question in four different ways, four different ways. There are four reasons we face persecution. Ready for number one? First, persecution matures us. Persecution matures us. 
you grow and you mature as a child of God when you have to face and endure persecution. Count it all joy, my brothers, James 1, 2, when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce patience or steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its perfect work in you. Why? So that you can become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. How many of you would like that kind of life? For you to be a man or woman after God's own heart who is perfect, complete, lacking nothing. All of us would. That's what maturity looks like. But how does God mature us? He does so through verse 2 of James, chapter 1. It's through trial. It's through persecution. It's through hardship. It's through pain. It's through suffering. So count it all joy when you do that because the work that he's producing through trial, through hardship, through pain, through suffering is that you might become perfect and complete and lack nothing. He is maturing you to be more like him. So how do we get there? How do we become mature complete? Well, he does so through persecution. See, men, women, here's what we have to do this morning. We have to embrace the path of maturity. If you want to mature as a child of God, the inevitable way of maturing is through persecution. It's through trial. It's through hardship. It's through pain. And none of us openly just say, hey, God, would you, invite, would you just send some trial my way? None of us do that. In fact, we all say the opposite. None of us just say, hey, God, I need some hardship so I can be more mature. But that's exactly what he does. He brings these things in your life, and it's actually encouraging. When you think about it, some of you, you're walking through some painful things today. You're walking through a season of hardship and suffering. You're walking through some persecution of your own. Maybe you've been the ostracized family member from some of your family simply because of your stance for Jesus. And God is using that to mature you, to sanctify you, to grow you into his likeness. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Everything that God does, every hardship, every pain, every suffering, he does it for your good, and he does it for his glory. Somehow, some way, you're going to be a better man or a woman as a result, and he's going to get glory if you allow. So persecution matures us. But there's a second thing persecution does. Not only does persecution mature us, but persecution is an opportunity to be a witness. Persecution provides an opportunity for you and I to be the witnesses that God has called us to be. Well, what do you mean, Trey? Do you remember the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8? Stephen is what you and I refer to as the first martyr, the first person who gave his life, completely laid down his life, and died as a result of his faith. You might remember he's out on the streets in Acts chapter 6 and he is sharing Jesus with everyone. I mean, this joker is just invigorated with the word of God. He's telling everybody about Christ Jesus and people are coming to know Christ. And then you got this group of people who are trying to shut him up. Say, man, you need to just hush your mouth. You can't be talking like this. You don't need to be telling people. And Stephen's just like, I'm not going to hush. I'm going to keep telling people about the things that Jesus has done in and through my life. I can't be quiet about that. So what this group of people do is they arrest him and they bring him before the great high priest. And what does the high priest do? The high priest basically puts him on trial. And in Acts chapter 7, you have this long speech that Stephen gives the great high priest or the high priest there. And Stephen walks through this and Stephen says some really hard things. You're talking about not being a soft Christian. 
I mean, he says to them, you are a crooked people. You, 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 the Holy Spirit of God is so absent from your life, it's ridiculous, Stephen basically says. Stephen looks at them and he says, your hearts are so uncircumcised, it's pathetic. I mean, this is the way he's talking to them. And as you can imagine, he can see in their faces, their countenance is changing. I mean, these people are getting ticked off. They don't like the words that Stephen is saying. And then in Acts chapter 8, it even tells you that Stephen knew. I mean, he started gazing to heaven. He knew it was over. He knew. This is done. They're going to now stone me to death. And all I can do is gaze into heaven and hope that God will give me everything I need to endure what's about to happen to me. He anchored his feet and his teeth. He sunk his teeth deep into his relationship with Jesus because he knew what he had just told them was the truth of the gospel and they were about to kill him as a result. And guess what they do? They begin to stone Stephen. There they are. They're stoning him. They're beating him. They're telling him to recant. He doesn't recant. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. He doesn't say it's not true. He stands his ground. He continues to preach Jesus, and he's there. And here's this, this moment where, where, there's, where the climatic of the whole thing is happening. Stephen is literally about to gasp his last breath of air. And in that same crowd is a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul was watching this dude give his life up for his faith. And Saul was starting to think, holy cow, this guy really believes in what he's preaching, so much so that he's willing to let these people stone him and just annihilate him as a result of him preaching the gospel. I mean, all he has to say is it's not true. He can go up and go home. And Saul watches this, and he watches Stephen die. In fact, many people say that Saul made eye contact with Stephen while he was taking his last breath. And who would Saul later become? Saul would later become Paul. And the whole church would begin to spread throughout the whole world through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. You want to know why Paul was so passionate? Because he came to Christ after watching the, uh, he converted to Christ after watching the death of a martyr. He looked at this man who was willing to give up his life for his faith, and you can just believe with all of your heart that Paul must have said, you know what, if that's what it means to follow Christ, and I'm going to choose to follow him, then I better be willing to go through that. And the reason some of us are so sissified in our faith is because we haven't ever seen any of that. I'm just being honest. We haven't seen it. We think the Christian life is supposed to be comfortable. We think the Christian life is supposed to be casual. We're supposed to just walk through this thing, and we're supposed to be blessed after blessed after blessed after blessed, when in fact the Bible's saying, no, it's just the opposite. You should expect persecution. You should expect suffering, hardship, and even pain. And here you see that persecution in the New Testament, Acts 6, 7, and 8, is the seed by which the church grows. And you get beyond the Bible days just in church history. And what do you see during the Reformation period with Martin Luther and John Calvin and all those guys? The same thing. You have men who are literally on their knees saying, you can cut off my head, but I'm not going to say the word of God's not true. That's what they said. And through their persecution, the seed of the church continued to grow and the church continued to expand, and more disciples came to follow Christ. And the same thing is true now in some of the hardest places on our planet. You can't take a Bible into open street in China, but you know what? The church is growing faster in China than it is anywhere else on the, continent, on the planet. Everywhere they try to silence the gospel, God begins to work in a miraculous way. That's what persecution is. It's an opportunity to further the gospel and to advance the kingdom of God. So persecution matures us. It's an opportunity to be a witness. 
Third, persecution shapes us to be like Christ. Shapes us to be like Christ. What does that mean? Flip over with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. By the way, I'm not yelling at y'all. I hope you know that. I just, guys, listen. This marinates in me for like weeks. And by the time I get to you, I, I'm just ready. You know what I mean? Like I just can't keep it quiet. But some of you are going to be like, why is he yelling at me? I get it. I'm not yelling at you. I'm just, I just sit in it and sit in it and sit in it. And I'm like, I see it in my own life, how it's not being lived out. And I'm just going to beat you like a pinata until candy falls out. <laughs> just kidding. You would think the pastor knows where 1 Peter's at. 1 Peter, chapter 2. Listen to this. 21, verse 21. Listen to how the word of God, I love this, by the way. This is one of my favorite texts. It says this in verse 21. For to this you have been called. The, the obvious question is called to what? Okay? When you walk through your scripture and your own private devotion, I want to give you two questions. Okay? One question you always need to ask is, why me now? Okay? Why me now? God, why do you have me reading this text today? What do you want to teach me through this in this particular moment? Don't be afraid to ask scripture questions. It causes you to dig a little bit deeper. So here, for this you have been called. Called to what? Well, verse 20 tells us what we've been called to. You have been called to suffer for righteousness. Suffer for doing what is right. For this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. This word example, you know what it means? It means writing under. That's what it means. If you were to translate this in the original Greek, it just means writing under. Here's the picture that's being painted. You got this image that you want to copy, and you take a piece of uh, copying paper, or not even really copying paper, but drawing paper, the thin sheets of paper, and you place it on top of that image. Tracing paper is the correct name for it. And then you begin to trace the image. You just sketch the image that you see up under it. Well, if Jesus is the image, you're the tracing paper on top, and he's just, God's just molding you and sketching you after the image of Christ. That's what it means. So that you might follow in his steps. Okay? Follow in his steps. You know what that word steps means? It's, it's a track of footprints. Think about it. You go on a beach, and someone's walked a track of footprints before you, and then you put your feet in their feet. So Jesus has paved this path for you. And you're just following in the steps of Jesus. You're putting your feet where his feet were. So we're following in his footprints. But here's what you need to know. When you follow in the footprints of Jesus, guess where it's going to lead? It's going to lead to suffering and persecution. Because that's what Christ's life led to, was suffering and persecution. Now watch what Peter does. Remember, Jesus' ultimate form of persecution was where? It was at the cross, yes. However, he might have suffered all throughout his life, but he never suffered as severely as he did at the cross. So Peter jumps right to the pinnacle of Christ's suffering in verse 22. Look, he committed no sin. Talking about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now when I read that, okay, I'm, I'm thinking he commits no sin. Well, the obvious is that there was no deceit in his mouth. Like that, Why even put that in there? Why add there's no deceit in his mouth if we already know that he lived without sin? You remember a couple of weeks ago how we talked about this? Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He lived without sin, so much so that even when his mouth spoke, there was no deceit found in his heart. He was completely pure. He was completely righteous. 
And then he says this in verse 23. When he was reviled, when people abused him and spat on him and hurt him, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Okay? Right here. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now listen to this. Peter's taking us back to Isaiah 53, 7, where he says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. This is beautiful. While he was suffering, while the world hated Jesus, the Bible says he did not open his mouth. Trey, when a car pulls out in front of you, you open your mouth. When someone's driving too slowly in front of you, you open your mouth. Yet Jesus is at the pinnacle of his life, facing the cross, being beaten and humiliated by the people of the world. And he opens not his mouth. They lied about him, not a word. They accused him and cussed him. Nothing comes out of his mouth. He suffers unjustly and nothing comes out of his mouth. Jesus endured inexplicable pain. Nothing came out of his mouth. They would spit in his face. They would lodge thorns into his head. They would hammer nails in his feet and in his, in his hands. Church, this is not a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. This is history. It's truth. This is what they did to Jesus. They literally and brutally abused him. They verbally molested the child of God. That's what they did. And the Bible says not a word came out of his mouth. But if we got super literal today, there were some words that came out of his mouth. Do you know what those words were? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There is so much power in that one statement that you and I could spend days upon days upon days before we ever even slightly understood its depth. He says in verse 24 here, and Peter does, he himself bore our sins in his body and on the tree that we might die to sin and live to what? To righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see what just happened? Jesus used all of that to shape us into the image of his son. Persecution shapes you to be more like Christ, and this is how we're going to end. The band's going to come out, or Tracy is, but here's how we're going to end. There's a fourth thing here, and this is what you need to hear, church family. Why would we have to go through persecution? Well, number four is persecution reaps heavenly reward. You hear that? This is the good news, guys. Sure, you're going to be persecuted, and you can expect that. But listen, persecution reaps heavenly reward. See, the key to overcoming persecution is to have motivation to endure, right? I mean, if you're going through something hard, you need something to motivate you to endure that hardship. If you're being persecuted, you need something to motivate you to endure that persecution. Think about the life of Jesus. What did Jesus tell us? It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. 
Jesus knew how it ended. The ending motivated him to endure the persecution. There are two primary motivations for you, child of God, this morning to help you endure persecution. Number one, when you endure, first motivation is a deeper love for God. You will never experience intimacy with God like you do in the face of persecution, hardship, pain, and suffering. You'll never walk like him more than you do when you walk through those types of of things. When you travel through persecution, you understand God at a deeper level. You, you, You walk with him at a deeper level. You experience what he experienced. You walk the life that he walked. So first, as a motivation to us, we get to experience a deeper intimacy with God when we face persecution in our lives. But there's a second motivation. The second thing that should motivate us to to endure persecution is this, a heavenly reward. A heavenly reward. Watch how this beatitude ends. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 through 12. Verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now watch verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus is saying, hey, bro, when you go through persecution, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me encourage you, child of God, this morning. Don't get so preoccupied with the here and now that you lose sight of the eternal. Don't get so preoccupied with what's happening in your life right now that you lose sight of the reward that's awaiting for you even then. You know, Luke wrote about the Beatitudes, but Luke wrote to a different group for a different purpose, and he also was a doctor. Matthew wasn't a doctor, and he wrote to a different group of people for a different group, of, uh, a different purpose. So their accounts look a little bit differently, but listen to the way that Luke says the same thing. It's this, in verse six, or chapter 6, verse 22, it says this. Blessed are you when, not if, blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and rival you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Again, Luke is saying to us, persecution is something you can't expect. It's not about if, it's about when. And then he says this in verse 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their, their fathers did to the prophets. Again, what motivates us to endure persecution is intimacy with the Father, and also the reward that awaits for us. Here's how I want to conclude today. Church family, the inevitable thing that you're going to walk away with out of this text is that you, if you walk with God, you will face persecution. You will face persecution. So my question to you this morning is, are you facing persecution? Are you facing Persecution, when you travel through the Bible, persecution is on every single page. Moses faced Pharaoh, persecution. Elijah facing King Ahab, persecution. Daniel in the lion's den, persecution. Joseph sold by his brothers into a pit, into slavery, persecution. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into a furnace, persecution. David faced persecution. The 
The apostles in the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, they're being persecuted for their faith. Stephen on trial in Acts chapter 7, persecuted for his faith. Paul thrown into prison over and over again, persecuted for his faith. Most, if not all, of the faithful men and women women in the great cloud of witnesses of Hebrews chapter 11, if you walk through their stories, all of them faced persecution and God did a dynamic work in and through them as a result. And every single one of them, much like you and I, can cling with the psalmist and say, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Your consolations cheer my soul. My question, church family, is are you facing persecution? If yes, remember, you're going to get to experience deeper intimacy with God. But not only that, but your reward will be great in heaven. But listen. I also have a question for the others in the room. What happens if you're not facing persecution? Well, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. If you're not facing any opposition or persecution, I want to ask a very gentle question this morning, and I hope you'll hear from my heart. Would that have anything to do with the way that you're living your life? Is the reason you're not facing persecution is simply because maybe, just maybe, you're not walking with God. Maybe, just maybe, you're still playing the game. Maybe, just maybe, you thought this Christian thing was supposed to be casual and not a commitment. Maybe, just maybe, your relationship status with Jesus is still pending. You're still trying to figure out, is this a thing that we're going to be married to each other or is this a thing where I can just keep you on the back burner if the front burner don't work out? Maybe, just maybe, you're wearing a mask this morning, and when God looks at you, he doesn't see the mask, he sees the heart. And the mask isn't fooling him, it's fooling everyone else, it's just not fooling him. And maybe, just maybe, today's the day you need to take off the mask. And you need to realize that the God of the universe loves you without the mask. You don't need it. He wants your heart. So my question is, if you're not facing persecution, why? not. Paul said, I am determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That's what I want to know. I want to know Jesus and I want to know him crucified. This is the truest perspective of Christ Jesus. My question is simple. Are you facing it? If so, be encouraged. If you're not, why? Why?